Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I was given a boy, he was in year two, who they suspected was dyslexic. They put us in the loft, which was freezing, and I had just asked him to spell his name, and he took off his jumper. And I was sitting there, I was thinking, why on earth freezing in here? Why is he taking off his jumper? And then I saw he'd laid his jumper out, and so that the name tag was visible. And his name was Sam. And he couldn't spell it because he actually didn't really know his letters. But by year two, everyone expects that you do. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher and educational mentor. And I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. My guest today might be referred to by some as a guru, a fountain of knowledge in the arena of the overwhelming world of learning difficulties that surround reading and spelling, namely dyslexia, as it is known to most of us, which comes with its own immense intricacies and complexities, which our guest today will endeavor to help pick apart for us. She has worked as a specialist tutor for dyslexic children diligently in schools and privately for over 15 years. She has a real passion and has impressively set up two organizations in London, UK, to specifically help address this. The first, Let's Get Spelling, camps which are run during the holidays and combine art, drama, sport with spelling skills. And more recently, her second venture, Handy Spelling, which is a stationary company aiming to put the most useful and misspelt words in places where children can access them subtly. Very clever and very useful. She accurately states that teaching spelling could be as dry as old boots, but actually leads itself very well to intellectual probing, creativity, and fun. Three things that all children, and particularly dyslexic children, respond to and need to make their learning memorable. A lover of skiing, theatre, and a dedicated friend, wife, and mother of three, my guest combines all aspects of her dynamic life and experiences to bring her genuine care and support to not just the children she works with, but their families also. She is a constant source of empathy, a shoulder to lean on when feeling perplexed by the numerous pressures and challenges children with these learning difficulties face. I could not be prouder to call her one of my earliest mentors when I transitioned into working with children who have additional learning challenges. I have always aimed to emulate her extreme warmth, care, and compassion to her students and the ability to make even the driest of spelling rules something as exciting as a Harry Potter novel. Yes, it's true. She inserts that level of magic and wonder into even phonics. I have witnessed it myself many times and am left in awe of how effortlessly she makes it all happen. I invited my guest to the Elevate podcast to share and shed some light to parents and others who like so many find themselves confused and full of angst when trying to navigate their daughter's learning journey. I am so excited and thrilled to have Sally Ashcroft here today. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us on the Elevate podcast. A very warm welcome to you, Sally. It's from Rita. Thank you again for coming on. And I wanted to possibly begin with you by asking you something very generic. Dyslexia is known to lots and lots of people as when children are young they might reverse letters let's just say that's the starting point um how do we sort of move on from that and understand what the actual definition of dyslexia is from your point of view i'm actually really passionate about trying to help parents understand whether their child is dyslexic and what that means and then i guess most importantly what they should do because i think um, some parents find that the word on its own sends them into quite a stressful place and others 
you know, really feel that they have to do everything um, and it takes over the, their lives and that of their children. And, and it, it can be uh, the response to having a dyslexic child is, I think probably the thing I've learned is the hardest to get right. And the reason for that is that dyslexia is on a spectrum, as we say. So your child may have it very mildly, moderately, significantly, or even severely. And often it may go hand in hand with one of the other disses. So uh, dysgraphia, sort of a handwriting issue, dyscalculia, an issue with uh, mathematical concepts, or um, ADHD, so an attention issue. And again, all of this can be uh, on a spectrum. And it, when you first hear that you think geez how is my child going to cope with dyslexia which is a problem with letters so primarily with uh, learning how to read and spell and understand sort of uh, grammar terms and remember their learning so that, uh, your, your memory is, is a real issue for your learning how do we deal with all of that that sounds like it's all of learning but actually it really is something that you can organize yourself and your child and use strategies and materials. And, you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there now. So it, it's a journey. And from my own experience of a mother with a dyslexic child, what I would say is, you know, this can be actually a really lovely experience that you, a journey you go on together that can bring you and your child closer. It isn't necessarily easy. You have to put more work into having a dyslexic child, which I guess we'll go into, but it's not a negative thing. And it's only school really, which is the hard thing because once they get to, you know, um, post GCSE, if they want to study A-levels or a degree or any sort of technical um, education, they'll be doing things that they are very fond of and that they're stronger at. And then when they go into, you know, the workplace, it's heavily proven that dyslexics do really, really well out there, uh, disproportionately well in the world. So you're really looking at the time between, say, you get diagnosed any time from the age of six to the time about 16 or 17 when you finished your GCSEs. That's the period that we really are very keen to help with. Mm. That's very interesting. Thank you so much for giving us such a nice sort of overarching summary of, of the stages of, and ages of children. We're, and I'm going to get into those in, in more detail in a minute. But would you say then it's the reaction to parents that would be the greatest struggles that they face when they're trying to get to grips with their child being identified as having some sort of learning difference, but with dyslexia? Yeah, so... You know, we all want our children to have a problem-free existence. And we consider that if uh, a teacher or a friend suggests, hey, you know, their learning is not really happening the way we would expect, perhaps they have a learning difference, that that's going to be a problem that, you know, can make us very anxious or, you know, send us into a tailspin. What am I going to do? I want to eradicate it or into denial, I have to say as well. You know, some parents are like, no, no, no child of mine. but Perhaps the parents of dyslexic children have a dyslexic family member. I mean, science is a hereditary condition. So somewhere in your family line, somebody is, but you may not be aware of it because it might be, you know, your grandmother who's done fantastically well in life and you don't realize that she struggled with her education when she was younger. But what I would say is it's really about balance. And I have two really key things that I tell all parents, but it, more than anything, it's don't worry too much. Just accept it like any other problem, really. You're going to have to be a little bit organized. You're going to have to accept it, do a bit of research, get some help, which we'll talk about. But if I had to say the two things that you must prioritize, uh, one is reading. Now, learning to read if you're dyslexic is much easier than learning to spell. But more importantly, it's really, you know, far more significant when it comes to any academic subject. So if you can't spell now, it is, you know, you've got spell check, we've got autocorrect. You know, most kids are going to be doing most of their work on a laptop. Spelling, I, I love to teach spelling, but it's really not that important. 
Reading, however, if you cannot read accurately and fluently and with understanding, that closes many, many doors across all subjects. So I would say prioritise reading above all else. And the other thing I would say is that dyslexic children can suffer self-esteem issues because, you know, they're in the classroom. They don't have a chance to do what they're good at. They have to sit in that classroom doing what they're perhaps not so good at for eight hours a day. And so it's really important that you find something that they are good at. And I would say you really be very, very sharp elbowed about it, champion that. It might take you two or three years to find out what it is, but dyslexics tend to be very, very good at uh, sports such as climbing or baseball, anything with a 3D aspect to it, uh, art, design, engineering, or drama. My goodness, how many of our actors, our brilliant, brilliant actors are dyslexic, uh, singing, musical instruments, there's so many areas where dyslexia is an advantage anyway, but find what it is your child has a talent for so that in school, they're not known as, oh, you know, that Sally, she's dyslexic. It's, oh, that Sally, she's a really fantastic drummer. So find the thing that they can be really good at. It also means that, you know, when they're at their orchestra or their sports meet or their, their competition or their engineering club or whatever, they're not the dyslexic child there. They're just the person who's actually really, really good at that. And it gives another identity and it sort of normalizes their sort of social groups. So for me, as a, both a mother and an educator of dyslexic children, I would say the two key things are get the reading up to speed and beyond and find something that your child can embrace wholeheartedly throughout their whole childhood. Amazing. That's such a great reminder and such a lovely message for parents to, rem- to hear. I think um, we can forget the child is an all-rounded student and there's all sorts of things about the child other than their learning difference. And I think at the start of this journey when parents are getting diagnosed or getting their children diagnosed rather, um, it can be so daunting and that's the only thing there that they can see. So that's a wonderful reminder for all, all of us. I wondered if then taking that sort of piece of information, you, in your experience, felt that parents or actually parents of girls, but particularly in the girls that you work with, have any kind of different reaction to their learning challenges over boys who might have learning challenges. Is that something that's ever come up before in your, in your view? Well, um, I think that the parents and the children in in a dyslexia situation, it really depends on that family, you know. So if you've got a really strict family, then often there's a lot of tension amongst the children desperately wanting to please uh, their parents. If you've got somebody who's a little bit, a bit more carefree about it, perhaps the child just sort of thinks, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to try so hard. But I think what is true of all children around year three, for some it's year two, for some it's year four, but it's pretty much quite uh, well documented. In year three, dyslexic children start to play up in one of four ways. And this, for me, is where the sort of gender divide is, uh, is perhaps more apparent than in any other area. So dyslexic children in year three have suddenly got wind of the fact Listen, in the in the playground, I'm like quite a smart cookie, but when it comes to the classroom, I'm not doing so good. And my friend writes really, really easily and accurately for like half an hour and doesn't break a sweat. And I'm like struggling and my work is really untidy or really inaccurate. And so that year three, they start to think, I'm a bit stupid. And what am I going to do about that? And it's, you know, it's quite a confusing time. And what the, the four areas that kids at this time start to move towards is either to be the clown, the class funny guy, a funny girl, to be very sad, which is awful to see, you know, and, and become rather depressed, uh, to just refuse, to just literally go within themselves and just refuse to do anything that is asked of them, or to be very disruptive, so to be angry, naughty, that sort of thing. And what I have seen is that girls around this age tend to go into the being very sad or refusing categories, whereas boys at this age tend to become either the clown or the the naughty, angry child. So, you know, obviously that's hard to say. It's not 100%, but it, it does seem to come down on those lines. Yeah. And do you think that's because there's a sense of awareness with girls or their coping mechanisms 
with friendships also start to play in a bigger deal at that age for them as well. Like they're trying to navigate who's their BFF or, and then boys at that age are not so concerned with that stuff yet anyway. Yes, I think that's exactly what it's related to, the, the peer pressure and the wanting to be, you know, to present the pretty handwriting with uh, lots of adulation from teachers and their peer group and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, lots of boys who aren't dyslexic produce heavily scruffy work and, and then and aren't too, too bothered about it left, right and centre. But I think the main thing I'd like to say, though, is by year three, you know, we're into quite difficult waters if you're not on it as a parent because there's a huge acceleration here happening you know and lots of kids suddenly start reading books that no longer have any pictures in them the work that you're being asked to present at school suddenly becomes quite a lot more heavily written work that you're expected to use verbs and adverbs and adjectives all these are horrible names for for parts of speech as well as other things and it if you're still struggling every time you've got to write a b and a d or an s or you know whatever the the issue is that you have you're, you're writing phonetically and not uh, you don't know your high frequency words yet when you are then overloaded with all this extra processing, which your friends don't seem to have a problem with at all, that must be really very, very difficult indeed uh, to sit in a classroom for hours feeling that way. And you've just touched on something that I was going to raise with you, and I think I just maybe you've answered it, but lots of kids when they're learning to read or write in the pre-prep stages, so before they get into the year three age that you're speaking of, they, when they're reading and they're learning to read and write, they, reversals is part of the process. Sometimes it's not something to be concerned of, but it seems to be a key indicator for, for, for lots of things for some people. Um, and I just wondered at what age and stage do you think that is correct for parents to dig deeper? You said, you know, by year three, they need to be on it. Um, what, what kind of other signs are they looking for before they realize it's time to get on it other than letter reversals? Well, I might be out on a limb on this, but I feel really strongly, Ramita, that, well, we know early intervention is essential for dyslexic learners. And if you start early with multisensory teaching that is specialized towards dyslexia, which, by the way, is fantastic for all children, regardless of whether they have dyslexia or not. If you start early before the child and their peers are too aware that uh, something different is going on with your friend next door, um, that's a huge bonus. So given that, you know, scientists say that you can spot a dyslexic child within the first year because of the way they process auditory information, I think that if you have dyslexia in your family, if you start to get worried by the end of reception and certainly by year one, there is no disadvantage to approaching the the child as if they have dyslexic tendencies and doing a little bit of gentle research and my my theme perhaps should be is you know work hard but don't stress over it work hard for your child advocate for your child get what's needed for your child but it's not you know every second of every day it's just a sensible support uh, put in place. And then if you're one of the lucky ones, and I have to say in my career, there's there's been a handful, it turns out they're not dyslexic. Uh, you know, it's that's a good thing, right? You, you just, you've done that extra work. You, it's bonded you together. You've all learned something and your child ends up, actually, it was just their lag and they've caught up. They're no longer dyslexic. What have you lost apart from a bit of time teaching your child? Given what you can lose by not getting involved and, and not helping your child, having a child who can't read by uh, year four or year five, that's a very hard place to be in. So, you know, schools tend to say, well, we're not going to say anything. We're not going to do anything till the end of year three. I, I think you should be looking at it by reception is my professional and, and as, as a mum too, because that way you can get your child reading by year, this crucial period in year three when they start to feel that they're stupid if they can't. Well, that's really interesting because I was going to say on the flip side, we often, for parents who might be listening to this, but other parents that we've come across in, in our experience as teachers, we often hear from parents saying that, but the teachers never said anything to us or they wish they were informed sooner about these issues that their children might may or may not have. 
Um, but again, it, it's, it's getting that, as you mentioned earlier, the balance right, because as we know, we don't want to rush into conclusions or bring up any kind of unnecessary things either. Um, but to your point, early intervention pays dividends in helping children cope with their differences. Do you think that we should be providing our pre-prep teachers with more resources in identifying children? Or do you think parents should be doing more research on their own to sort of look at these types of concerns? I definitely think it should be the professionals. It's very, very easy to get these things wrong, you know, and I genuinely don't feel that our teachers are well equipped enough at present to start diagnosing and they need to refer on to specialists. I, I don't, listen, I, I really genuinely don't want to make people anxious and feel like, oh my goodness, my child reversed the B, that I, that woman said uh, I should be worried about it. That's really not where I'm coming from. But I am in that group of parents who say, why did you not tell me my child is the be all and end all of my life and you left, you suspected this for two years and you didn't tell me? Or, you, you know, to be fair to a lot of teachers, they didn't actually know. So we have this catchphrase, you know, which is dyslexic tendencies where we suspect it might be the case, but we're not 100% sure. My point is, you know, if you as a sensible parent aren't going to go into a tailspin if somebody says, listen, I just think we need to boost this child's phonics and do a bit of extra reading because there is a possibility, particularly if you know you've got it in the family, that there's going to be a, a dyslexic diagnosis somewhere down the line. My advice is get on it. Just do it as soon as you possibly can. Have a lovely time reading and reading and reading and reading with your child and help them overcome, which may, you know, it, it can be quite a lot of work. So start it early on. But sorry, I've gone off your question, which is I, I think teachers, uh, I would love them all to be equipped to spot what's going on. I think often they are worried in reception and certainly by year one, but are not entirely sure or have a, a line from the school, which is we'll deal with this in year three. I think that that's too late. Yeah, I think there's also a cultural difference in that. Obviously, in the UK, you're, by reception year one, you're already doing that is a very sort of telling time, whereas I think in other countries where you don't maybe go to school till you're five or six and you only go for half a day, sometimes in my experience, I don't know how you find that, but that can play a part in saying, well, you can't know at five or six. I, I, when I was a kid, I, when I went to school for two hours a day at five or six, no one knows anything at that point. So I, I, I don't know how you'd speak to that. Yeah. For example, in Germany, because their language is so much more phonetically regular, um, a diagnosis of dyslexia is actually quite hard because the sounds on the letters map very well. So they generally diagnose dyslexia in Germany based on your focus and memory. And, and our language is really hard. You know, it's totally irregular. 50% of it is a nightmare. If you actually study you know, various words that we are expected to, to pick up, like thought or through or even said, you know, they're so irregular. And if your your mind doesn't map sounds to letters very uh, easily, then I think it's very important that you start quite early on. And do you have any easy interventions that you might advise parents that they can implement at home? I know you mentioned reading. Are there other bits of advice that you would suggest for parents to try to put on regularly to support their children? You must be really uh, mindful of the fact that just because your child knows the, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, knows the song, that they know the alphabet, actually. And if you ask, you know, to, to be able to progress, you must know the letter names, sounds, the direction in which they are written, the different presentation, whether it's a capital or a cursive or a lowercase. And you need to know that back to front. So often once I've asked a child to lay out an alphabet, for example, I'll ask them to tell me the names backwards. And you, you get a really strong sense then of actually how inaccurately they're, that, that's the foundation, right? If you don't know what these letters are called and what sounds they make, and can make, because often they make more than one. How on earth are you then going to read? You know, particularly if there's no picture for you to use your intelligence, because I, I, what I haven't stressed is that, you know, so many dyslexic children are, are super, super clever, and it, it's not related to their IQ at all. So if as parents you get given a diagnosis of dyslexia for your child, what you also want to know is how smart they are. They're not connected at all. 
Now, if you are told that your child is above average intelligence, uh, but is moderately dyslexic, that's a very different child to somebody who's of uh, below average intelligence, but very mildly dyslexic. And so you want to adjust your expectations and the amount of intervention accordingly. If you have a super smart kid who is super dyslexic, you are going to want a specialist to deal with them very differently to other children. So please don't think your child is not clever because they have dyslexia. Often it's the inverse, um, but it's those are two very important pieces of information for you to have. And then you can adjust your materials accordingly. But you know, I'm a big fan of whiteboards. I love these uh, magic whiteboards that you can just buy off the internet and they go up and you can put them on a door frame or window and then throw them away. Um, I Children much prefer to write on whiteboards and on paper. Um, there are things like C-Pen, which are pens that, um, you know, read to you. you. You put it across the text and it reads out to you what is there. I love more than anything aud um, audio books, CDs, because just because you can't read Harry Potter doesn't mean to say you absolutely can't understand and enjoy it if you're dyslexic. Um, Handy Spelling, a company that I am involved in, produces lots of stationery for dyslexic children so that they've got uh, hard spelling words in their hand. Um, you know, I, there, there's so many things you can do, but probably, Ramita, the most important thing, as you well know, is you've got to overlearn. So there is some evidence to suggest that dyslexic children may need to read a word up to 500 times more than their non-dyslexic peer before that pattern gets transferred into their long-term memory. So we mustn't read things that are too hard. The thing is consistent reading of accessible, easy material that's not going to make him guess the words. You know, you want him to see the word, to understand it, to enjoy it. There are lots of games you can play with reading. I think if you can develop a love of reading in a dyslexic child, you get a gold, gold star as a parent because that's going to provide them with a skill throughout their life. Yeah, I would say that's a goal for parents of non-dyslexic children. Yes, that's true. I forget about them. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a gold star for all, for all parents if you could do it. But yeah, I, and, and those tips are really fabulous. And, and you're absolutely right. There's so many practical things you can bring in. It's a good reminder of how you can make things into a game and how you can vary it. I'd just love to share with you, if I can, that moment for me, which was when I was doing my specialist teacher training, I was given a boy who they suspected was dyslexic. And in the first lesson I ever met this little boy, he was in year two. They put us, for some reason, in the loft, which was blooming freezing. And we got up there and I had just asked him to spell his name and he took off his jumper. And I was sitting there, I was thinking, why on earth freezing in here? Why is he taking off his jumper? And then I saw he'd laid his jumper out and so that the name tag was visible. And his name was Sam and he couldn't spell it in year two. And of course, I'd asked him to do this thing that caused him incredible torment, which is not being able to spell a relatively simple name, because he actually didn't really know his letters. But by year two, everyone expects that you do. And so nobody goes over them. And what's fascinating to me is that children make the same mistakes every single time. I can tell you exactly which letters they're going to reverse, which ones they're going to put in the wrong order, which ones they know the names of, which ones they don't. It never varies because our, it's our language that is quite complicated, not, you know, and, and the child finds it hard when certain sounds are repeated. We keep talking about neurodiversity as a, as a kind of whole rather than, you know, specific. And there are some kids that will have just one specific diagnosis, but it seems to me that the increasing number of children with learning differences seem to have a multitude of difficulties that they're trying to cope with. So how does one, as a parent or a teacher, successfully address one of the difficulties the child is facing while maintaining some sort of equilibrium in the other areas? Well, as you say, you know, this is all primarily going on in your prefrontal cortex. So your uh, processing, your memory, your attention is all happening in one place. So it is not 
it's not such a surprise perhaps that there is quite a large crossover between dyslexic children and children with ADHD. Now in the relatively recent past and a, a diagnosis of dyslexia you needed two things you needed a working memory weakness and a phonics weakness but working memory is very very similar to attention deficit but what it means really for us as educators and for you guys as parents is just be really really mindful about how tired your child is don't waste time traveling all over wherever you live spending loads of time in the car that's unnecessary be quite you know uh selfish about how they spend their time doing things that they love not not other things that you think oh that they ought to be doing that give them breaks in between make sure there's lots of water keep it as entertaining as you can i mean for me i wanted my son to read so much it was so important to me and i just told myself every day i work with him I've got to get him to want to come back and do it tomorrow. And that's what motivated me to come up with game after game after game so that he wanted to spend the time on the sofa with the chocolate biscuits, which also obviously helped. But it's a child with dyslexia is, uh, and ADHD is going to have to work harder. There's no way I can sugarcoat that for you. So, you know, let's make it as enjoyable for them as they can. Prepare in advance. I should really stress that actually. You know, this is not, you don't want your child sitting there while you're getting all your stuff out and trying to work out what to do. Prepare what you're going to do so that they are sitting down for 20 minutes of quality time and then you release them with a reward. Don't, you know, switch your phone off. It, it's not easy being the parent. You know, you join this club. We have this big club of parents of dyslexic children who can nod at each other and go, geez, you know, we, we've put in a lot of extra effort um, to get them just up to, to the same stage as their peers. But please, it's tiring for your kids and we want them to enjoy it. And like you say, even if it's 15 to 20 minutes a day of quality time with your child doing the right exercises is, is worth that than over an hour of you fretting back and forth trying to find things um which again I, I was going to ask you this a bit later but you've sort of already brought it up and I wondered if you wouldn't mind explaining it a bit more to parents who may not understand the difference between working memory and what we call usual memory so what how do you explain what working memory is when it comes to learning so, well, we have uh, seven memory systems in our brain, and the two that we really need to know about are the working memory, which is a very one of our short-term memory systems, and it basically it does three jobs. So, it blocks out anything you don't need to learn that's not important. So, if you're walking down the street, you don't want to remember everything that you see, hear, touch, smell, whatever. So it, it basically focuses you on what's important and then it holds that information whilst you do something else. So for, and it, this is why it's so important for learning. So, for example, if your teacher says, you know, John goes to the market and buys 12 apples and Sally goes to the market and buys 14 oranges, how much fruit do they end up with at the end of the day? Your working memory is going to hold on to those two facts whilst your brain makes the calculation. So it's like a, your blackboard, if you like, or your whiteboard for uh, the information that you're processing. And then what it does is it says, this is actually really important. So say you learn, you know, the capital of England is London, then that's something I need to remember. It will try and force that information back to your long-term memory, which is the second most important thing that you need for, for learning. So, to, I, I think it's quite straightforward, right? If your working memory, the thing that helps you to discriminate what's important, to focus on what's important, and then to put what's important into your long-term memory, if that is weak, you're really up against it. But it, the good news is it's a muscle. You can make it stronger. There's so many things that you can do if you Google working memory. It's absolutely malleable. You can build it like a muscle in your arm. And it's really important. And there, there was a study some time back which showed that, you know, over the years people say, um, oh, you know, your academic success depends on uh, whether your parents have got A-levels or if your mother sang to you when you were in the womb or, you know, if you eat cod liver oil or something, you know, all these different things. But what they now believe is that academic 
progress and, and achievement is mainly related to the strength of your working memory. You may not even be so smart, but if you've got the capacity to discriminate against information, to hold it in mind whilst you're manipulating it, and then to put it into your long-term memory, then it, you will do better than somebody who's much smarter than you, but has got a weak working memory. So yeah, it's fascinating and utterly vital. And you know, it's really interesting that I, I don't really work with adults very much, but the people who do approach me for working memory are always medics. They've all learned about it and they all say, I've got exams coming up. I know I've got to improve my working memory. But you know, I, this is not just for dyslexia, any child um, should you know, we should be looking to see that their working memory is, is as strong as we can make it. And there's lots of good games that you can play to, to make it stronger. Um, but of course, it is part of the diagnosis of dyslexia. But then it can be on a spectrum. So, you know, I've had children who can remember literally one thing and then 15 seconds later, they've forgotten it. But you can also have dyslexic children who um, can, only, can remember many more than that. But it's very different to remembering things from your long term memory. And because it's hard for dyslexic children to process using their working memory, when it does finally get into their long term memory, you find that they are really good there. So that's why parents always say to me, oh, but she's got a fantastic memory. You know, she can remember the whole Liverpool squad or, you know, she can remember what we did for holidays ago. That's because that information, it took some time, but it's in there. We wanted to ask you again a little bit about um, kids with dyslexia and issues with working memory and then the importance of those children being placed in academic school settings that's going to work for them, not against them. And how do we help parents understand the importance of those two things? So I think it's really important that parents have a long-term view as to where they want their children to go. So if you are aiming for a university place and your child is, uh, you know, suitably academic, even, you know, averagely academic and can do that, you want them to go to a school that isn't going to underteach them. You know, some parents say, oh, I just want her to be happy. And I think, well, that's all very well now. But what about when she's 13 and she tells you she wants to be an engineer and the school she's at hasn't really given her a good basis? You know, when are you going to catch up? I think if you push for your child to be at the most academic school, you really are running the risk of various crises of self-esteem going through your child's life and as much as parents when they're little think oh it'll fine it'll never happen to me it'll be I mean maybe people are a bit more uh, understanding of mental health issues now but you know when your child has a nervous breakdown because of a spelling to something as ridiculous as a spelling test or because somebody said something mean to them it's really hard to get over that and you know you you will find that hard to to navigate it's horrible and then, funnily enough, my next question was the idea of understanding not just the academic settings, but also the new pressures of social media presence and perhaps the, even the academic pressures seem to be growing exponentially on children year on year. And I find that kids with learning difficulties, and I know there's enough research out there, seem to be more susceptible, more vulnerable to mental health issues. And I think without overgeneralizing, I'm not suggesting that if you've got a child with some sort of learning difference that they're going to also have mental health issues. I just sort of wonder if they're more susceptible to having self-esteem issues, confidence issues, and how, if, if that is the case, then what are the best strategies for us to help support them? Mm. Yes, so I, I think that's a really important issue, Ramita. So it, it's interesting, I mean, definitely education is becoming harder. That's for sure. I mean, the expectations, I see, you know, that we were doing Dickens at A-level, then suddenly he's GCSE, then suddenly he's 13 plus, and suddenly he's 11 plus. I mean, soon you'll have to read, you know, A Tale of Two Cities by the time you're four. But if we keep going like this, it's insane what is going on in certain sectors, particularly the private sector, which doesn't help matters because it, it really puts a lot of pressure on all children. In terms of social media, 
with this. What I would say is that the dyslexic community is fantastic. And that's one of the bonuses as a parent of dyslexic children. You will find that they are the most communicative, funny, generous, always, you know, sharing great information and positivity and stories of children who've just done fantastically well. So the thing about it is it's, it's a slightly ambivalent area, but I feel it's really important that a child understands their dyslexia and owns it. And in my own family, if I share this with you, that, uh, you know, I have two children who aren't dyslexic and one that is. And at one point, one of my non-dyslexic children was giving a, a lot of grief to my dyslexic child over his spelling. And the proudest moment, really, of my life was when my dyslexic child turned around and said, are you really such a beep that you are taking the mickey out of my spelling? You know, would you, would you take the mickey out of somebody else because of their difference? And I just thought that that was fantastic that he stood up for himself because he now has, you know, he's older now and he has self-esteem from so many other areas of his life. So we want our dyslexic children. I mean, find, is there an uncle? Is there a cousin? Is there somebody that they love in your family that is dyslexic that you can say, yeah, so, you know, you are dyslexic. So is, you know, your cousin James, who you adore, or all of these thousands of brilliant people in the world from year dot, you know, lots of role models out there who are so generous with their their experience and teach them the positivity about being dyslexic and the reality. So don't sugarcoat it. Don't lie to them. Don't say, oh, you know, this is going to be marvelous for you. It's going to be harder for you to learn to spell, which we are not too worried about. It's going to be harder for you to learn to read, but we can nail that in a year if we sit down and do 20 minutes every single day of your life. But you're going to have so such good communication skills, 3D skills, creativity skills. You can be, you know, you can have all the best jobs, right? The actors, the directors, the baseball players, the architects, the creative advertising people, the writers, you know, all of the fun creative jobs are very much owned by dyslexic people. So um, I think you have to be realistic, positive, and get them to understand exactly what it means. It's literally that you have a problem with letters and a bit of memory. You can boost your memory and, you know, who gives a monkeys if you can't spell that well? I'm going to get onto that in a second, but my whole point there then is, is empowering kids, uh, girls particularly with self-esteem issues, about accepting their differences as their superpowers, right? And, and really acknowledging, yes, I find it hard, but it's teaching me all sorts of things about resilience or, or effort or how much harder I work is giving me a work ethic that maybe kids my age wouldn't have otherwise. So I do think there's a lot there that you've said, which hopefully will resonate with parents about the right messaging for children to have. I think that's important. We often forget about ensuring that they get the right understanding would you take the mickey out of somebody because they can't run very fast you know would you take the mickey out of somebody because they can't draw you know would you take the mickey out of somebody because they have a stammer you know that it's just totally unacceptable and i think they should face up to anybody who gives them grief over their dyslexia and should feel empowered to do so because it is simply not acceptable to pick on someone because of something that, that they're born in that way. And, uh, and it's really not so significant that you should carry it as some sort of uh, terrible burden. It's not. You're going to get through it. You can have a wonderful opportunities and you're just going to have to work a bit harder at school. That's the bottom line. Here, here to all of that. So there's a couple of more things I really want to get through. And I'm looking at the time. I could talk to you for hours on this. And you mentioned your personal experience with having three children, two with, uh, without dyslexia and one with. But then this must be tricky for parents to, to manage when you've got multiple kids at home, some of them who might need their input for extra effort. There are issues around jealousy, you know, fighting for mommy's time or dad's time, whoever's there at the care. Um, and, and just generally not, parents just not sure. It worked really well. These two kids did really well, or this child is doing really well, and that's the road I took with that. And why can't I do exactly the same with child number two or child number three? And it throws parents out of a bit of, because there's no rule book, there's no handbook. We all know that. And so we've done it once, and it seems to have worked really, really well. Um, why why can't I apply the same set of rules with, with child 
at number two or three who's got these issues? Yeah, well, I think it's really tough whether your children are dyslexic or not to keep reinventing. You know, there's only so many hours in the day, aren't there? It's so so much easier if they all go and do football or something at the same time. But obviously, we have to try and find our children's particular interests and particular talent. And as an advocate of dyslexic children, I would say put them first, uh, find their passion and, you know, take them to every activity related to that passion that you possibly can and make it part of your journey as a family. I think the hardest part, Ramita, of what you're saying is if you have a dyslexic child followed by a non-dyslexic child. In my experience, it's very tough when a child's younger sibling outruns them, if you like, when in reading and spelling and that whole thing about, geez, my sister is three years younger than me and she's reading books that are five times harder than I can read. You know, that's that takes incredible family management because you want to hide it for as long as possible until the dyslexic child has a really good understanding of how things are different to them. So for example, if your child becomes a stellar climber or swimmer or whatever it is, then at that point, it might not be so hard for them to accept, you know, my little sister is really, really good at this stuff. She finds it much easier than me. She she reads all this stuff and I listen to it on Audible or, or whatever. I find that that is a very hard dynamic when the younger one isn't. But there are many, many courses, I would say, you know, just like six week, an hour a week type thing. I might be slightly wrong on that, but things have changed. But, you know, you can do sort of informal training at the British Dyslexia Association for parents who just want an introduction and a few ideas thrown at them to connect in a meaningful way that's going to further their, their dyslexic child's education without it being too onerous. But I, I, I think, you know, that is a problem, isn't it, for all families. One last thing on it, though, Ramita, that has occurred to me is that the dyslexic child in a family is often the least verbal. Not always, but often they're the ones that sit quietly at the dinner table and let everybody else natter away. Um, and I would encourage parents to note, you know, if you're in the car and you're taking four kids to a party, is your child doing a quarter of the talking or are they letting their more verbal friends do all the talking? Now, it's so important that children talk and particularly dyslexic children, you know, getting their heads around the way language works and getting the words out of their mouths in a fluent, accurate way, because word recall is, is, is difficult, this whole memory issue. And if every night at dinner, your child just suddenly has fallen into that role of being the quiet one, we're not serving them well, you know, move them up the table next to you and tell the more verbal ones to, to, shut up for a bit so that even if your child needs a bit of time to get their ideas out you want them to practice at home right you want them to become uh, more verbally confident in a safe space at home so that when they're at school they're not quiet Mm. yeah amazing tips that's really 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 useful even uh, thinking about that in the classroom setting that it's true lastly before we say goodbye and, and close the conversation up. You've got your fountain of knowledge, as I said in my introduction. But what are your views on technology and embracing all the great things that technology brings to help children with reading and spelling? Mm. So um listen, AI is going to be huge and it's a 3D concept primarily, which suits all our dyslexic learners. So you know let's get our dyslexic children coding and involved in creating and being the wonderful AI engineers uh, of the future. In terms of now in the classroom, particularly if you have a child um, with dysgraphia or particularly scruffy handwriting and or really struggling with spelling, I'd get them on a laptop as soon as you can. You have to expect a four to six months agony period of learning how to type as quickly as 
uh, you can write, but you're going to do it anyway. You know, at some point in their teens, they're going to learn how to type. Why not give them the advantage of being able to type, autocorrect, use spell check from an early age and release that pressure? What about, you know, not even learning to type? What about just voice recognition now that you could just talk into it? Well, I think that's good. But I mean, I, I think having some sort of, you know, self-determination that you can jot down your own notes, you don't always have to rely on something like that is quite useful. I, I mean, I think it's really helpful to do audio notes and any processing is useful. So if it's an easy process, if it's as easy for you to, you know, put to write down notes on your audio section of your phone as it is for a non-dyslexic to scribble down a shopping list, then use it. It's That's helpful. But I, I'm quite an advocate of, well, I'm an advocate of learning how to type really fast and really well. But I'm also a realist that it is a painful, horrible process. I still remember the woman who used to hit me over the knuckles. Um, I, hopefully nobody does that anymore. But, you know, it's such a gift to be able to talk to somebody and type at the same time as you might when you're writing. So I'm really into technology, but I'm primarily interested in the future because I think there's going to be a wonderful careers out there in AI and it's going to really suit a dyslexic thinker. Amazing. I can't thank you enough. You've offered us a huge amount of support. You've offered some great insights. I think the tips that you've offered bring a lot of clarity to parents. So I can't thank you enough, Sally, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, it's a great thing to be the parent of a dyslexic child. It's, it can bring you really uh, closely together. It's not easy, but it's a great thing. And you take a child who's born with a uh, difficulty and you turn it into a positive. And that is something for parents to be so proud of. And you meet a lot of great people along the way. And you have such immense pride when your child masters these milestones and, and does well. And I wish everybody luck, but contact the B. DA, the British Dyslexia Association, if you need further help, because they are a fount of videos and, you know, courses and all the rest of it to help people. Oh, that's great. And also in the show notes, I will include your website for parents or anyone listening that might want to discuss things a bit further than we've touched on in the podcast. Um, so listeners, if you're out there and you're curious to, to talk to Sally a bit more, um, I will link all the things in the show notes at the end so you can look her up and also the, the website that she has recommended. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there was a lot there for us to take away and a lot of information. Thank you so much, Sally, for taking the time again, for sharing some of your insights from all your valuable experience. I do hope we will all remember how we can celebrate even the challenges that come with children who have learning differences. I do also hope that you will share the podcast with others who will benefit and that you will rate and review it as it does help us spread awareness. Thank you so much for joining me. Loved having you here and can't wait to have you join me again next time. Until then, bye for now.